David and Jamie, we are very blessed with the gifts that God has given to the people who lead us in worship. Um, this morning we've seen deacons ordained to service. We saw deacons ordained for a particular means of service that God has planned for them. He, if you where to worship and to serve, then He has a gift for you. He has specifically designed that you be a particular part of the body. Ephesians 4 talks about every part of the body needs to do its part in order for the body to function. If you um, stump your toe, you realize how important every single part of your body is. If you've got a jammed toe or a thumb or something, you recognize how important it is that every part be functioning. And if you're called here, then God's got something specific for you, specifically planned for you uh, to do. And so I hope that you will discover what that is, as Scott talked about, as KJ talked about in his, in his prayer time, so that we can be the blessing to the world that God has designed us to be. There are so many needs in our community. There are needs within our body, but there are needs all around us. And we need every part functioning so that we can be who we're supposed to be. It's all part of God's plan. The part of God's plan that we're going to talk about this morning is, is one that we just as soon do without sometimes, but it's very much part of His design in building us and making us like Jesus. Well, I mean, we live in a, in a great country in a great time of history, don't we? I suppose every period of, uh, every group of people in history, especially those who are, are, are blessed to have resources at, uh, at their command, feel like, wow, People never lived in the past. We're the only one. I mean, look at how many advancements we've made, and things are so great for us now. Maybe Noah and his kids didn't feel that way right after they got off the ark. But for the most part, we keep progressing, you know. And and so we look back and we say, boy, we've got it so great. And I imagine, you know, a hundred years from now, they'll look back and go, you just thought you had it. We've got so much going on. But you think about all that's been done. I mean, not only can we be at the other side of the world within 24, less than 24 hours, we can communicate immediately with people on the other side of the world through several different media. Many, many advances have been made in lessening and in some cases eradicating disease and, and generally in easing life's burdens. Many barriers that previously existed because of race or or uh, gender are gone. Now, some still exist, but a lot of them are gone. We enjoy privileges and conveniences on a pretty broad level that existed in the past only for the, those who were the most privileged of society. And while there are many in our country who would quickly dispute such assertions, their protests would be based primarily on comparisons with those who enjoy all of those blessings rather than the, the, the masses of history or, or the common men and women who struggle and suffer so much in third world countries today. We do indeed live in a wonderful age. With our prosperity and good fortune come certain expectations and attitudes. Now, Justin McRoberts reminded us last week that with our good fortune and prosperity come certain responsibilities. Unfortunately, we tend not to think about those, but we do develop certain expectations and attitudes. We tend to think that life will always be good, and in fact, we do everything that we can to insulate ourselves from troubles. We can actually begin to think that troubles will never come, but inevitably, they do arrive and we suffer. 
in most cases, suffering can be mitigated and sometimes outright eliminated. Okay, well, I got a trouble. I got trouble here. Well, let me see. Let me get on the line. Let me call this person. Let me go to the bank. Let me do this. And we can take care of the troubles that come. But sometimes we can't. You know, in many third world countries, people expect life to go badly. And they're quite surprised when things go well. What? For that? Really? Me? Wow. Didn't expect that. Uh, when we say, I didn't expect that, it's usually bad stuff. What? I didn't expect that. We, ex- we, we tend to expect life to go as well as we have planned it. And when things go awry, that's when we're surprised. When bad news shatters our protective shields that we've designed to keep troubles out. Then add to the unpredictable reverses of life the equally unexpected difficulties that come with publicly proclaiming the Lordship of Jesus with your life and with your words. And well, life would seem surreal if not for the pain that keeps us tethered to a reality that we just hadn't anticipated. I didn't expect this. And here it is. So what do we do when life hits us like that? We rejoice and live for God. And then we rejoice again and some more. That's the truth. That's the lesson that we're going to see over and over these next ten weeks as we look at the book of First Peter. Purity and joy and suffering. God's comfort and instructions to us in First Peter. It's a book of grace, as the Apostle Paul stated as his purpose at the very end of this letter. He said, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. All that I've written is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. You know, we think about God's grace bringing salvation to us, and, and it does, by the way. It's the only way we can be saved is through God's grace, not, not because of the, the good things that we do so that our good works outweigh the bad but only by God's grace through Jesus' death on the cross for us and His His payment for our sins and believing in that. God grants us grace. He gives us grace and saves us. But grace also sustains us in times of difficulty, which, although they often surprise us, seem to come in waves, especially at certain periods of our lives. Wave after wave of difficulties and suffering. Grace covers this concise yet powerful letter that we know as the book of First Peter. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle Peter wanted to help suffering Christians find their footing in God's grace. Solid footing, of course, can only be enjoyed on solid foundation. This morning we're going to look at the first 12 verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 where he lays quite a solid foundation that will be built upon through the, throughout the rest of the book as he brings application for triumphant living for those of us who follow Jesus. So we'll read those first 12 verses. In 1 Peter chapter 1, would you please stand as we read God's Word together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, I did that in the first service too, Asia, Asia and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he, when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that you now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Our Father, we are grateful for this word that instructs us and comforts us and encourages us, Lord, even in the midst of difficult times. And we pray that this morning our hearts would be drawn afresh and anew to You and that we might find strength for the life to which You've called us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks and be seated. Peter's going to spend most of his letter telling his readers how they should live in a world that is hostile to those who follow Jesus. He's going to tell them how to live with regard to their interactions with those that don't know Jesus. He's going to tell them how to live with regard to their interactions with Christ followers, which can sometimes be a little bit difficult. And he's also going to tell them how to live even inside the own home, in their, inside their own home. Peter um, follows the same pattern that Paul follows in establishing truth first and then moving to practical application. Actually, Paul generally spends a lot more time establishing doctrine before he moves to practical application than Peter does. But since we have become readers of his letter, then these truths apply to us here in the 21st century as well. The potential for persecution for us is not nearly as great as it was for the readers of um, Peter's letter, though they didn't understand what was about to come, as I'll talk about in, in a little bit. Before Peter tells us how we should live, though, he's going to tell us who we are, and who we are has a whole lot to do with Jesus. And he keeps coming back to that in the letter, but the bulk of what he's going to say about that is already established in these first 12 verses. N notice the way that Peter introduces himself. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Almost all of the believers of the day knew who Peter was. He really didn't need much of an introduction. And, and it's interesting the way that he, as quickly as he can, he, he's done with himself and he moves to, to glorify and to magnify Jesus. Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus Messiah. Savior. Messiah. Jesus is prominent in 1 Peter, just as He is in all of Scriptures and especially in the New Testament. You know, it's a good thing that Peter immediately pointed to Jesus, the one who changes everything, because he, he, he proceeds to tell them what they already know, what they already knew, that followers of Jesus are out of place in this world. They're exiles. They were, in fact, exiles of the dispersion. He was referring back to the nation of Israel when, when the Babel, in the Babylonian captivity, they were put around different places in the world. They were dispersed. That they, the Aspora, it's called. They were sent all over the world. And he said, in the same way, just like the nation of Israel, just like God's people of old were, were sent around the world, now you were exiles. And the point that he was making simply was that you don't belong in this world. I mean, most of his readers were, were, were Gentiles. So Peter was using covenant language. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we'll get to it in, in, in a couple of weeks because he uses it over and over and it'll be better to come back to it in a few weeks. In short, Peter was saying that God's covenant, just as it had been with the nation of Israel, was now with the people of God in the church. Again, since most of these were Gentiles, uh, he was saying God's covenant is with you. This letter went to churches in five different regions, regions of what is modern-day Turkey. Many of the readers grew up in the cities uh, that, the, that received the letters, and they, they had been there all their lives. And so when Peter said, you're exiles, he wasn't saying you were sent there from somewhere else. He was saying, you just don't belong in this world. We're strangers in our own homes. This isn't our home. And one of the things that Peter was doing was saying, don't get too comfortable in this place. It's one of the great things about suffering. It, it takes us out of our comfort, comfort zones. If it, That sounds like an oxymoron, a great thing about suffering. It is, though, and I think you'll see more of it by the time we come to the end of this passage today. And we're going to return repeatedly to the theme of suffering in First Peter because we return repeatedly to suffering in our lives. We get over one thing, things seem to be going okay, then something else comes along from another angle. Peter called these readers elect exile. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Elect exiles. They were exiles, but they were so because they had an incredibly privileged relationship with God according to His active foreknowledge in which He chose to bless us before the foundation of the world. It was a Trinitarian work. The Father foreknew us. The Spirit sanctified and is sanctifying us. And Jesus cleansed us, wiping away our sin with the sprinkling of His blood. But at the same time, we're called to obedience. Now, if you think about this hard enough, that seems a little bit incongruous. That we're called to obedience and yet there's this continual sprinkling of blood which indicates forgiveness of sins. So, which is it? Are we in constant need of forgiveness? Or once we are obedient, then that passes. Well, listen to what Wayne Grudem says about this combination of, uh, uh, of truths. 
Peter's readers, of course, realized that their obedience in this life was always incomplete, that even the most mature Christians were painfully aware of remaining sin, and that God's purpose, obedience to Jesus Christ, would never be completely fulfilled in this life. So Peter adds that their lives are also leading towards sprinkling with his blood. End quote. So it's true on both counts. No wonder Peter could say, May grace and peace be multiplied to you, continually multiplied to you, even though these readers were experiencing suffering that was going to increase. Now, I know what you're thinking about when you look at verses 2 to 4. You're worrying about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of of predestination. And some of you are saying, Aha, there it is. He chose us because He knew before the foundation of the world that we were going to choose Him. I'm sorry, but you can't use verse 2 that way. I used to use it that way. That's what I said. But you can't. It's not, that's not what He means. As I've already stated, it means that He planned ahead of time to bless us with salvation. Suppose I came into uh, an unexpected uh, fortune. Suppose I had a relative that I didn't even know about. And... I've been given a whole bunch of money. Now, if that happens to you, please tithe to the church. And then you can start thinking about how you might want to bless other people. I mean, I might think, you know, Tony Grabowski. I just want to do something for Tony. And so I'm going to, when the opportunity is right, I'm going to give him some of this money or I'm going to bless him in a certain particular way because now I have the means, the resources to do it. And that, that's basically what is being said about how God foreknew us. He knew before the world ever began that he was going to bless us with salvation. And what an incredible salvation it is, as we're going to see in these next few verses. Verse 3 says that he caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, you're going to explore, again, these strange combinations in, in home groups this week. Living hope, suffering. They seem to be going in different paths, but there's a connection. We have been caused to be born again to a living hope. No matter what side of the fence you fall as far as election or choice, and I think God says, In Scripture, it's pretty clear. He chooses us, and He also says that we have a choice. He he gives us a choice, and we have a responsibility to choose Jesus. If it's got to be one or the other, it's clearly His choice. It can't be. I just think it's beyond our ability to to make it fit. It's It's a mystery in Scripture, and antinomy is a theological term, when it seems to be two contradictory contradictory um, truths, but they are both stated as clear. Doesn't matter to me. All I know is that God has blessed me with this. And, and, and when we spend so much time debating that doctrine, we miss the blessings. We miss what God has done for us. We're exiles, but we are elect exiles. The Trinitarian God has blessed us with an incredible gift. Salvation in Jesus brings an inheritance that is nothing like this world. It is imperishable. It won't grow old and die. It won't get sick. It's undefiled. No sin touches it at all. More than anything, I'm looking forward to being done with me in heaven. 
Okay, I'm looking forward to being done with some others too. But especially, I'm looking forward to being done with me. I'm tired of me. And no more sin, sin won't touch it. And it's unfading. The thrill never wears off. I mean, there are certain things that, that are, when they're new, they're so exciting and full of life. And after a while, you just get used to it. And it's not that big a deal anymore. But that's not going to be the way it is in heaven. I don't know if it's going to get better. It may. But it'll never, ever fade. It'll never lose the glory that we experience the moment when we find perfection right in front of us. I, I am, I just wish that you knew how much the songs that David chooses so often fit so well with the songs that we sang this morning just prepared our hearts. And I knew what I was going to be saying because I've been drinking in this passage of Scripture for quite a while. The songs that we sing about this morning give us a great deal of hope. There is so much truth and doctrine in the song. I hope you're not just thinking about, oh, I just enjoy this music. I hope you're getting the truth that is built in to that portion of our worship. That's the kind of thing that waits for us in the future. In the meantime, God's power keeps us safe as His children. Now, in the face of all this good news, the readers barely formed the question of suffering that was so prevalent in their lives before Peter addresses it. You need to understand that most likely this letter was written three or four years before Nero had enacted intense persecution against Christians. It's unlikely, in fact, that they knew that that intense persecution was coming. It was quite easy for him to persecute the Christians after Rome burned because they were kind of strange. They were different. They were weird and people were sort of put off by their ways. They experienced most likely a, a little more intense form of persecution than we do uh, today because we're Christians. Look, if, when I've stayed with a family several years ago, almost 10 years ago in the Czech Republic. This, this, this gentleman was an extremely successful businessman. The rest of his family thought that he and his wife were certifiable, absolutely nuts because they were Christians. They thought they were crazy. I mean, they would have probably had him committed if they could. Even though this guy was extremely successful and generous and thoughtful and kind. If you live for Jesus at any level at all, people are going to think you're strange. But it's nothing in the South like it is in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And it's not like they were experiencing in that day. So, then is this word not meaningful to us from First Peter when he talks about suffering? Is he only talking about persecution? Absolutely not. In fact, Peter says in verse 6 that these believers were experiencing various trials which likely includes all kinds of suffering beyond persecution. If you hear someone say that 1 Peter was written to those who were suffering intense persecution, that's definitely an overstatement. And in fact, it's probably an overstatement to say that all the suffering that he talks about here has to do with persecution in some form. Look, when people at school, in your dorm, when they laugh at you because you won't party with them, and you won't 
You won't hang out and you won't laugh at the dirty jokes and you don't use the language that they use. When, when you do those kind of things and people laugh at you, that's persecution. Some of what they were experiencing here. Now, don't get all martyr syndrome and everything. I mean, it's not that big a deal. Uh, there are a lot of people who experience that kind of ostracization for other things other than being a Christian. But, but it is part of the deal. Persecution was certainly there for these believers, but it was not the only suffering that God had built into their lives. Wait a minute. God builds suffering into our lives? I mean, I thought that Satan made us suffer and then God helps us get past it. Well, verse 6 says that various trials that cause us grief are necessary. In other words, God has built this suffering. It's necessary that you go through this right now in your life. Why? So that once our faith is tested, it will be found to be more precious than gold. And it will form in us a heart to praise, honor, and glorify Jesus when He returns to this earth at a level we never realized imaginable. God has built certain dimensions into our lives that will never be realized apart from activation. And oftentimes the activation is suffering. Or the, the means of activation is suffering. He brings this suffering into our life. How many times have you gone through a really difficult time and you hate it when you're going through it? But then later you say, I'm so glad that it happened. And people say, really? And you say, yeah. Because I, I realize things that I would have never known apart from this suffering. I don't know if you've read through this book yet. I encouraged you almost a month ago when I thought we were going to start. I've been a, I think I need to wear a red name tag because I'm, I feel like a visitor here. I've been gone so much with my kids' illnesses and stuff, stuff going on. But I encouraged you a while back to read through the book every day for a week. If you haven't done that yet, please, please do it. Take that challenge this week. Read through all five chapters. It won't take you long. Every day for the week. It's a very encouraging book about triumphant living living in the face of difficulty. I have to confess, I'm not always good at that. Satan knows where my weaknesses are. And he comes at me hard and it's very easy to be sidetracked by particular trials. But I want you to know that as I've immersed myself in and with this book the last month or so, it's begun to have an impact on the way that I think and the way that I look at life, especially in the middle of, of trials. And, and, and the last couple of three years have been particularly difficult for me. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm, I'm in a different place than I would be without these transformational words. One of the big problems when we suffer is that we tend to allow our world to close in on us. I mean, we can't see beyond our, our difficulties. And immediately, in this passage, after letting us know how useful trials can be, Peter exhorts us by commending our beliefs, sort of like we do with children. Oh, aren't you a big boy eating your vegetables? Yeah, yeah. I'm so proud of you. Anyway, Peter says, Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Inexpressible joy in the face of trials. You know anything about that? I've seen glimpses of it. It depends on how you handle the suffering that comes to you. I, I, I have seen it though. I've seen it full on. Now, I I could choose several of you who have gone through lots of difficulties, but I'm I'm going to pick on Helen Jernigan uh, this morning. Helen has a a debilitating blood disorder that's a debilitating blood disorder, and she's struggled with cancer and has had some significant complications with that cancer, and it's been so painful that at times she's asked the Lord to take her home. I'm ready to go, Lord. I can't. This is so hard. But I have watched her also with tears streaming down her face saying, He's so good. He's so good to me. In the middle of pain, He's so good to me. And you know what? I know she means it. And you know why she means it? Because she believes it! She believes something she cannot see. And it makes a difference in the way and she responds to suffering. I love to hear Albert McKinney talk about how grateful he is for salvation that God has given him. He understands the value of what the, what the Lord has done. I, I'm not sure most of us do. Verses 10 to 11 tell us that the prophets who prophesied about Jesus' sufferings and the subsequent glories knew that something was up and they wanted to know what it is. What's up, Lord? In the Spirit of Christ, the Holy The Spirit of Christ. Look at that trinity in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit. Jesus said, you're you're doing this for others. You're not doing this for your own understanding and knowledge. Just trust me. You're doing this for others. Verse 12 says that the Lord showed them they were servants of future generations, prophesying about that which would be complete in Jesus. And we have that knowledge. Yet we take it for granted. I mean, we know the deal, and it ought to change the way that we look at life, even when it's hard. The Christian life often seems like one big paradox. I mean, Jesus said, "If we we'll, if we try to save our lives, we'll lose it. If we if we give our lives away for His sake and the sake of the gospel, then we'll save it." Uh, just things that just don't seem to to, to mix like. That they should. I want you to look at, at two words that are close, closely related in verse 11, although they seem worlds apart. Suffering and glory. I mean, you'll find these two words close to one another over and over and over, not only in the book of First Peter. You're going to see it time and again. If you read through it this week, just think about how suffering and glory, how, how closely connected they are. It's all through the New Testament. In fact, it's not the first time that we've seen them together in this passage. I want to close our time uh, back in, in, in verses 6 and 7, where once again, suffering, though used, different words are used, and glory are closely connected. You may have heard this story. If you have, uh, I, I'm sure it'll encourage you, even, in the, even as you hear it again. If you've not heard it, I'm sure it will encourage you about a traveler who, in olden days, was walking by the road, and, and, and he came upon a man who was sitting beside the road, and he was stirring something in a pot. And this pot was being heated by fire underneath. And he, 
he walked over a little bit closer and he saw it was liquid and he says, what are you doing? And the, and the gentleman said, I'm, I'm refining this gold. He says, well, what's the process? He said, I heat the gold until it's, it's in liquid form and the impurities rise to the top and, and I skim them off. And he says, I guess it has to be pretty hot. He said, yeah, oh yeah, it does. He says, how hot do you have to get it? He said, really hot. Well, how, how, how do you know it's hot enough? He said, well, that's easy. When I look into the gold and I can see my reflection, then it's hot enough. So, what's it like for you right now? I want to tell you. I, I have said, it's too hot, Lord. And he keeps stirring. And there's a reason that he's stirring. Because he wants to see Jesus in me. It's too hot, Lord. You're going to thank me for this. But it's genuinely true. We're being conformed to the image of Jesus. What a difference that ought to make in the way that we respond to trials. Let's pray. You know, God has built the trials into your lives that will make you more like Jesus. Don't forget, we we, we have an enemy who is quite adept at at, at taking our focus off of of the Lord and saying it's too hot, causing us to say it's just too hot. But remember also, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And if you've been just overwhelmed with suffering of late. And it can be any kind. It can be emotional as well as physical or, or relational. These various trials are necessary in God's plan for your life. If you know Jesus, then through them, He's making you more like Jesus. So I, I wish, wish I could have spent three weeks on this passage. There's so much I didn't say. And there's so many little nuances and the the flow is so beautiful. I hope you'll read this passage over and over again. And you'll see how God uses those trials to to build us. And and, and what a difference even it will make on the day that when we see Him, if we handle them well now. Would you just give your heart to the Lord and say, Okay, Father, it's all right. Increase my faith. I believe. Help my unbelief. It all comes down to that, doesn't it? Belief or unbelief. Oh, I'm so so slow to believe sometimes. Dear Lord, forgive my unbelieving heart and change me, Lord, into one who trusts you no matter what. To one who, who yields to you and who appreciates the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus so much that it, 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 it causes a burning in my heart to obey and to be like Jesus. Thank you for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that strengthens, comforts, enables. Oh Lord, we are needy people. 
And our suffering shows us not only our need, but the provision for our need. And so we give ourselves afresh and anew again to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.